If you're with me and you have your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter is the who. So who's writing the letter of 1 Peter? Well, it's going to be Peter, no surprise there. Right? But he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we have Peter who's writing, and by what authority is he writing? He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, he was, um, he was one of the earliest disciples to be called by Jesus. And um, uh, his Hebrew name is Simon. We see in Matthew 16 that um, Jesus says to him, he says, uh, and I tell you, you are Peter. He changes his name to Peter, and he says, on this rock I will build my church. Now, Peter is Petros in the Greek, but in the Aramaic, uh, which is the language that Jesus and the disciples spoke, it is kephos, and both of which mean rock. So Jesus says, your name is Peter or Petros, you, and on this rock I will build my church. Now Peter's one through the Gospels, as we read through the Gospel, he's, when the disciples are mentioned or named, Peter's oftentimes, he's the first one mentioned. Peter's the one that speaks up the most. Peter's the one that there's there's more said of Peter than any other disciple. But at the same time, Peter gets a bad rap because he tends to speak when he shouldn't speak. He objects a lot. You know, he's 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 uh, overconfident in himself and his presumptions of Jesus and um, and the plans for Jesus. And matter of fact, in Matthew 16, later on um, in verse 22, when Jesus is telling the disciples what's about to happen, what's eventually going to happen, he says, "One day the." The elders and the priests, they're going to arrest me. They're going to put me on trial, and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to, I'm, they're going to kill me, right? So he tells the disciples this, and Peter seeks up, and he says no. You know, and, and Matthew tells us that he rebukes Jesus. He pulls Jesus to the side. And he's like, hey, Jesus, come here. And rebukes him and says, no, far be it from you that this would happen. And then Jesus replies then back to Peter. What famously, he says, get behind me, Satan. So you have Peter, who Jesus just said, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. But here he's saying, get behind me, Satan. You're, you're being a hindrance to me right now, Peter. You're a stumbling block to me, not the rock that I'm going to build my church on. Well, Peter, he was often very overconfident in, in his, his objections and his assumption of Jesus. Well, he says um, in John 13, when, when uh, Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet, right? Peter speaks up and he tells Jesus, no, you're, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. In a way, he, that's humble in a way that he didn't want his master to lower himself to such a level to where he would wash his feet, right? Servants wash his feet, but, you know, that was the lesson that Peter just didn't understand at the time. And Jesus tells him, he even tells him, Peter, you don't, you don't understand. But then Peter, again, there further, he tries to dictate what Jesus does there, and he says, you will never wash my feet. To where Jesus has to tell him, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you're not going to have a share with me. But then we see Peter very quickly flip on that and says, well, in that case, then don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head as well. Right. So he's just silly Peter. Um, then at the transfiguration, you know, he speaks when he doesn't really need to speak. Right? So you have Jesus on the mountain, and he's, he's there with Moses and Elijah, and they're having this discourse there, right? just the glory that is happening right there. But uh, Peter and James and John have to go along with Jesus up there. So he's, they see this happening, and what does Peter do? What would you do, right? Peter says, hey, let me pitch three tents. Like Moses and Elijah are going to hang out in a tent on this mountain. But what could, what could someone, what could he possibly give to this discourse between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah that would give any weight or any bearing in what they're saying? Just be quiet at what is before you, right? But then John tells us he, that he didn't know what he was saying, but he just felt he had to say something, so he just threw something out there. 
But it's the same Peter, though, who, uh, who had faith enough to step out of the boat during the storm when he saw Jesus. And he said to Jesus, if it's you, call to me, tell me to come to you, and I will come. Jesus says, come. So he steps out of the boat and run. He walks on water. But it's that same Peter who his faith, when he took his, his eyes off of Jesus and was fearful of everything around him, he began to sink. Right? And Jesus then lifts him up. He cries out, help me. And then Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. But it's that same Peter who arrogantly, um, when Jesus tells them, you know, that this night, he tells the disciples, all of you will fall away this night. And Jesus arrogantly underestimates the test of faith that they are about to endure when Jesus is arrested. And that's kind of the theme that through this letter he's going to begin to over, he's going to begin to talk about. But just that test of faith that he completely underestimated when he said, all of you will fall away. And Jesus says, no, not me. They might, Jesus, but I'm not going to fall away. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, Jesus, I will die before I do that. I will die before I do that. Then probably not long after that, whenever the betrayal happens and the guards do in fact come to arrest Jesus, what does Peter then do? He pulls his sword and he cuts the guy's ear off. Right? A little brash there, Peter. Right? You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. What do you have a sword to do? What do you have a sword in the first place? Right? But it's but it's very reminiscent of Matthew 16 when Jesus says, They're gonna come and arrest me. Right? And Peter says, Far be it from you that's gonna happen. Right? But don't get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block. And then when that came to pass, what did Peter, in fact, do? He tried to put himself in front of Jesus and that which Jesus was being called to do. Right? But that is, that is Peter. And then, and then probably a couple hours after that, he does, in fact, then deny Jesus three times. John tells us that he goes away weeping bitterly. Just, now we see Peter, just this broken, oftentimes arrogant, headstrong, jumping headlong into things man that he's just broken probably ashamed but he's still no less the man that jesus said you're the rock that i'm going to build my church on and he's a shining example of that of god's sovereignty over if if god says that we are going to be something or he's going to do something then it's going to come to pass regardless what we do or try and do to keep it from happening if he says it's going to happen it's going to happen if he says you're going to be it you're going to be it and in Peter, we see this flaw man, despite all those flaws, he's still the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church. In Isaiah 55, 10, God says this, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, that it shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus said, You are the rock, this is the rock that I'm going to build my church on. And we don't see that at this point in Peter's life. How is he going to do that with this man? But then after Jesus is resurrected in Galilee, as he's training and he's teaching the disciples before he commissions them, he pulls Peter to the side and teaches him by himself. And he asks him three times, Jesus, do you, or Peter, do you love me? Yes, Master, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then he says, feed my sheep. And he commissions Peter, feed my sheep. Then in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Peter receives that Holy Spirit. He walks out, gives a sermon at Pentecost and just this masterful sermon as to who Jesus is, who the people are, and light of Jesus, right? And 3,000 people were saved that day and the church is born, right? And then as the Acts continues, we see Peter, he becomes this prominent key leader in the early church. In Acts 3, he heals the lame beggar at the temple gates. In Acts 4, him and John go before the high priest and the high priestly family because of that. And then they ask him, by what name is this man standing here healed? And Peter, 
uh, Luke tells us, filled with the Holy Spirit at this point, says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And here we see the complete radical transformation of this man that would deny Jesus just months before. He's standing before the very people that crucified Jesus. Now he's boldly proclaiming to them, it is by his name, Jesus' name, whom you crucified, that this man is standing here healed. That is a radical transformation of just boldness in Peter, of this leader, because God said, you are going to be the rock on which I build my church. Jesus said that, and it came to be. Then we see, it continues through Acts, and Acts 8, along with John and Philip, he took the gospel to the uh, Samaritans, you know, the half-Jews who they didn't talk to. And then in Acts 10, he sees the vision of the sheep coming down from heaven. It's got the clean and unclean animals on it, signifying that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentile as well. So then Acts 11 and 15, he advocates the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. And then after decades of ministry, around AD 64, 65, under the reign of Nero, he writes this letter. And it's to a church, a church that is experiencing a great deal of opposition and persecution under, under Nero. And it's said that uh, in AD 64, in July of AD 64, is when Rome, the city, burned, and it burned for days. Um, and it's said that Nero, he had this lust for building. He wanted to build, but uh, he had to take down stuff to build, but the Senate didn't want, wouldn't allow him to just start destroying stuff so he could build more stuff. So it's said that he sent people out to have the city burned to make way for all this. And then afterwards, in the fallout, when all the loss of life and then the pagan temples were fallen and all this hostility that was going around because the people were mad, right, he had to redirect that hostility at that point, so he blamed it on the Christian. It said that he blamed it on the Christian community. So then this persecution ensues to the, to the Christians at this time. So Peter's writing this letter. That's the author. That's who Peter is. And I want you to know that because I want you to know you know, have a grasp of who Peter was in light of who we are. I think many of us can identify with Peter, but at the same time, we can be who God's called us to be. We will be who God's called us to be, and we can do what God has called us to do. So there's Peter. He's, he's the writer. And now who's he writing to? Verse 1b says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now those are five provinces of an Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And just east of Greece, east of Rome, Italy and Rome. And he's writing to these five provinces, and he says, to those who are elect exiles. Now, the word for exiles there is peripodemos, which means stranger or foreigner or sojourner. Right? Other, some other translations say alien. So to the chosen aliens, he says, or the chosen or the elect exiles. So if he's writing to a people in Asia Minor, and he's writing to them where they, where they live, how is it that they can be exiled where they live? But as a believer, where is our home? Heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. So if our home is in heaven, but yet we are here, then we are exiled here, essentially. All right. Bless you. And the dispersion, what is the, uh, the, the elect exiles of the dispersion? Well, the dispersion is another name for the church at this point in time because they're dispersed across the earth. They're scattered across the earth. So believers whose home and citizenship is in heaven, they're exiled here and dispersed over the earth. But only that, he says, to the elect exiles, those that are chosen. 
It would be a great comfort to these people who are experiencing this persecution to remind them here, right out of the gate in this letter, I'm writing to you who are chosen by God. I know that times are tough, but you are chosen. You are God's elect. And right now you're exiled. Your home is to come. You don't belong here. This is temporary. And, and just like the Israelites when they were exiled to Babylon, right, their home was Jerusalem. They were exiled to Babylon, but they longed to go home. Even Abraham himself, you know, he was, um, he was a foreigner. He was a sojourner, a foreigner in a foreign land, but he was also chosen by God. Right? So these are, at the same time, these are Old Testament descriptions of Abraham and God's people that now Peter is applying to these Gentile believers. So that they're receiving this inheritance. They're called in. They're part of the family of God in that. So Peter's writing to these elect exiles now then he qualifies that and clarifies that with verse 2 he says according to the foreknowledge of god the father and the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to jesus christ to jesus christ and for the sprinkling with his blood now that verse right there has it is packed with a ton of theology i mean so much so that you could we could do an entire sermon series on that right there but the things that i want us to really gather here and glean from that verse right there is three things. One, God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. He's talking about salvation and those three people, the three persons of the Trinity right there. And he says that election, this to be chosen, it originates with the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that means that he planned before. It's not that he observed before, but God planned before. God the Father planned before. It's part of his plan. And your salvation is accomplished through the Spirit's sanctifying work. And to sanctify is to be set apart for something, to be called out of something. So you're called out of your former way of life, former way of life. you are set apart for something. All right? And then it's for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. And it's, the, and it's Jesus' blood and that is applied for that salvation. And then he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So there's who's writing, there's who he's writing to, and there's why he's writing. So what is Jesus, what is Peter going to be writing so the body of his text here in this letter starts in verse 3. And it's a praise for that salvation. And he starts out and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before he gets to anything else, this is who's, I'm, I'm Peter. I'm writing to you, elect exiles. In the dispersion, the chosen aliens, the chosen people of God. But before I say anything else, blessed be God the Father and Lord of our Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Before he gets anything, any encouragement that you may give anyone, begin it with, blessed be God. He blesses God before he gets into anything else. And then he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So according to his great mercy. Now mercy is the withholding of what someone deserves. What do we deserve? As sinners, what do we deserve? We deserve death. Right, So the greatness of our sin requires now a great mercy. And according to that great mercy, he has caused us then to be born again to a living hope. Not to death, but a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable, is, 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 it's not going to pass away, right? It's opposite of perishable. Right? This is... This is kind of foreign to us here on this earth. Why? Because everything on this earth is temporary. There is an expiration date on everything. Nothing lasts forever here, and it's not meant to last forever here. Right? 
but our inheritance is imperishable. Then it's also, it's undefiled, it's unstained, it's unpolluted, right? It's unfading. Simply put, it's not going to fade away. You know, it will not decay. But the most important thing here, what he says, is where this inheritance is. He says, it is kept in heaven for you. If that inheritance is kept here, what is here, here is temporary. And we can't, we don't, we're not going to have a temporary inheritance because he says it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So that inheritance is kept in heaven where it can be eternal and lasting and imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then he says in verse 5, he says, uh, it's kept in heaven for you. You who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So by God's power, his supreme, omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign over us power, we're being guarded through faith. So it's his power that empowers our faith. That's what he's saying. Without God's power, without the Holy Spirit in our lives, there is no faith to be had. He gives us that faith and empowers that faith. And then because of that faith, we are guarded. What happened to Peter? Remember Peter when he was walking on the water? Right? As long as he had his eyes fixed on the person on, of Jesus, the power, the one that gives him the power to walk on water, to hold up, he was walking on water. But as soon as he became aware and fearful of everything around him and the storm around him, he took his eyes off of that power. What happened? He began to sink. He began to sink, but then Peter still had faith enough to cry out, Lord, save me. And Jesus grabs his hand and holds him up and lifts him up and says, Oh, you have little faith but I've got you. Our faith may wane from time to time. We may slip, but Jesus will not let us fall as long as we keep our eyes on the power that supplies that faith. And then that faith guards us for what? It guards us for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That faith is what gets us through everything. Because if everything here is temporary, what are we living for? We're not going to live for what's temporary, what's going to fade away. That's That's foolish to live for something that's going to fade away, so we live for what is to come, that salvation that is waiting and ready to be revealed. And our faith guards us through that. And then he says in verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, rightly so. If we hold on to that fact and we believe that by God's power we have that faith and it guards us through to the inheritance that is to come, we should rejoice in everything, knowing that we have that awaiting us. Then he says, Though for a little while, if necessary... You've been grieved by various trials. Now he says here, if necessary, that's, you know, you may be here this morning and you may be in the middle of it. I mean, just right in the middle of the storm. And you may be asking, why? Why, Lord, is this necessary? Why is this taking so long? Why am I still here? When is this going to end? You know, asking the why question over and over. Why, Lord, is this necessary? And you've heard it from the stage before if you've been here. I learned it from Dick Patterson, is that we shouldn't be asking why. We should be asking what. Lord, what do you want me to learn through this trial? What are you trying to teach me? But if you're here today and you're asking the why question, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 gives you the answer to why. And he says, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that 
What is, why is it necessary? So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is praise and glory and honor for you. When your genuineness of faith is tested. Consider a potter and he's got this lump of clay. Right? And he's got it in his mind and he has a vision and a plan for what this lump of clay is going to be, right? But how does he go from this lump of clay to the bowl or the cup or the, the vase that he wants to make, right? He's got to put it on a wheel, he's got to get to moving around, and then he's got to begin to apply pressure to this lump of clay. Different pressure in different places. Then after he's got it shaped and molded and formed by that pressure, then what's he got to do? He puts it in a kiln and he puts it to the fire to cure it, to solidify it into what he's created it to be for its usefulness that he's created it to be used for. Now that lump of clay, consider the feeling of that lump of clay, what it feels when that pressure is applied. Well, that's irrelevant to the potter because the potter knows how much pressure to apply. He knows where that pressure needs to be applied. He knows how much, when, how long, and how to shape and mold it and how much heat to put that piece of clay through to cure it into what he's created it to be. And that's the most important thing is he knows how much and where it can take it before it will crack, before it will break. So at the end result, whenever he is finished with it, it will work for what he has intended it to work for. And we are all being shaped and molded into the image of Jesus from one, glee, one degree of glory to the other. So some of us may be a bowl, just a big simple bowl that he can just push the middle, push out, a little bit of heat, and then it's a bowl that's useful. It might be the mashed potato bowl at Christmas time, but you want that mashed potato bowl, right? But if he didn't take as much time on that bowl, right, and it cracks and breaks and your mashed potatoes go everywhere, you got an upset kid at Christmas time because he doesn't get his mashed potatoes. But at the same time, it could be an ornate, beautiful, shining, ordained vase that nothing goes in. How dare you put something in this, but just sits on a shelf. And what does it do on that shelf? All it does is point to the potter and how much time and delicate touch and care that that potter went into making that vase. Some are bowls, some are vases, some are cups, but it will be necessary to apply pressure and heat to get it to be in the shape that it's useful for. But then, too, we need to be careful not to mistake our, the consequences of our sin for trials meant to test our faith. What do I mean by that? But if you're, if you're disobedient to your boss at work over and over and over and he fires you for it, he gets tired of it and he, and he, and he fires you, right? Then you're unemployed and you burn through your cushion in a couple months, right? And then all of a sudden you're struggling to make ends meet and then you say, well, God is just testing my faith. No, you're living with the consequences of your sin. We don't need to cross those two. Right? If you're lying and cheating and stealing, then you lose position and you lose friendships. Eventually it's not God testing your faith. You're living with the consequence of your sin, for all the years that I lived in outright rebellion to the Lord and the struggles that I faced because of the decisions that I made, the struggles, on just mental struggles, the emotional struggles, the physical struggles, financial struggles, all those things were consequences of my sin that I had to deal with and live with. They weren't God testing my faith. But that does not mean that God can't use those times. The times in your lives where you've struggled because of consequences of your sin to shape you and to mold you, to learn from those things. But we need to be careful not to say that's just God testing my faith. But 
Rather, you're just dealing with the consequence of your sin. But now there are genuine tests of faith. There are places in this world where for you to step out and proclaim the name of Jesus puts a target on your back, literally. Where you could literally lose your life or physically be beaten for your faith in Jesus Christ. There's places where, where if you convert to Christianity, your entire family, everyone who you have ever known and has ever loved you or you love, immediately on the spot will disown you and cast you out and hate you. But Jesus says, they hated me first. But that's, that's reality. There is real, true, physical persecution in parts of this world. We in America, thankfully, we have the freedom to be here as we are. And sadly, we neglect that very often in the American church, the ability to be here and openly worship the God that we love. But there are places in this world that cannot do that for fear of genuine physical persecution and oppression and for fear of death. And at the same time, too, also, there's the sin of other people. Right? We, can't, we can't control other people, but sometimes the sin, the consequences of other people's sin gets on us sometimes, right? We can't get it off sometimes, right? And it's a struggle for us. But then say, you might have a friend or a close relative that's just, that's going through it right now, that's just in the middle of the pit. And they can't seem to get out of it. The hits just keep coming. And they can't do anything about it. And they just have to ride with it. And as much as you want to be able to do something, you can't tangibly fix anything for them. But you love them and you want them to. And all you can do is pray for them. And by your faith in God, hope that God is faithful and the same to them and that their faith would strengthen and they would keep their eyes on Jesus and that they would be lifted up. And that's tough, but those are genuine tests of faith. But if we would but keep our eyes on Jesus through those times, we will walk on water. And then when we do that and others see it, others will ask, how are you walking on water right now when you're going through that? Well, Jesus, and he's right there. Let me show him to you. That is the quickest way, when we suffer well, that is the quickest way to preach the gospel to somebody. Because that is when people see the difference. Peter says, rejoice with joy, though for now, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. If you rejoice with joy when you're grieved by various trials, people see that. How are you rejoicing with joy right now? Well, Jesus. What do you mean? Well, let me tell you about him. That's the quickest way to share the gospel with somebody right there. And people want that. It speaks for itself. It sells itself. All you got to do is just say it. It's like that vase that points right to the potter. Tested if necessary, why? So that the genuine test, so that the tested genuine, genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember that our inheritance is not here; it is there, and that's where we're going. Everything we do here should be to that end, for the eternal value that is there. He continues in verse eight. He says, "Though you have not seen him, you love him." Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he's saying, though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, Peter walked with Jesus for three years. Right? Peter's seen Jesus. He saw firsthand what Jesus did. He himself firsthand did 
in the name of Jesus, right? But for us, he's saying, you have that faith. You didn't see Jesus, but yet you love him. Your faith gives you that. Your faith empowers that. Your faith makes that so. And you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy. And though our inheritance is in heaven, the joy of our salvation is had here and can be experienced here because of what we know is waiting. He says again, and he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the outcome of that faith here that is empowered by God is that inheritance that is there. And by the outcome of that faith, remember uh, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, faith, now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Right? Why does he say that the greatest of these is love? Because faith, faith and hope, at some point, they are going to be realized. The outcome of that faith is Jesus Christ is the getting of that inheritance, right? And your faith will be made complete. At that point, hope and faith are no longer required because they have been made complete in your inheritance and your salvation made complete in heaven, in eternity. So the only thing that's left that goes on forever is love. That's why it's the greatest. And it's waiting for us there, the salvation of your souls. Now in verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation... He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So the prophets who even wrote about this salvation, they searched their own writing, the writing of other prophets, and searched diligently, inquired carefully, trying to what? Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So they were trying to figure out. They didn't know when and who this Christ was going to be that they were writing about. And they searched it. They wanted to know. They longed to know who this was going to be. Right? Can you imagine that? You're getting this revelation from, from, from God and the Holy Spirit to write down this prophecy about a salvation that is going to cover the entire world and change everything. But you, it's not for you. You're not going to get to see it. Can you imagine that? So they just searched. They wanted to know when is it going to happen? Who's it going to happen from? But it's important here to note is they write about and they're predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They're suffering first. Christ had to suffer, and then he was glorified. In the same way for us, if we're made in the image of Christ and we're to be made in Christ's likeness, there's going to be suffering first, and then there's going to be glory. But that suffering is here, and it is temporary. The glory is eternal. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good, the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So they realized that they weren't serving themselves. They're writing to that future salvation. They're writing to us on this side of the cross. And what does that mean? Because today we have the New Testament. We have the writings of the early church, of, of Peter, of Paul of Luke, of Matthew, of Mark, right? We have the Gospels. We have all these letters. We have the New Testament just preaching and telling us what Jesus did. But at that point in time in the first century church, all they had was eyewitness accounts and Old Testament prophecy. So those prophets wrote for them in that first century. When Jesus came, and those pro all those prophecies were fulfilled. Every single one of them to the letter fulfilled in Jesus, that's what they took to the people. This is what Isaiah said, Jesus. This is what Malachi said, Jesus. This is what this prophet said, that prophet said, this prophet said, and it's Jesus. Tangibly, they could see it, eyewitness accounts of what happened. This is what was told. This is the salvation that just came. 
And then here, hundreds, thousands of years later, we have somebody at some point was told this good news by the Holy Spirit, received that good news, and then they shared it with you. I now heard, at some point, heard that good news, believed that good news. The Holy Spirit imparted my faith, gave me his faith, the power to have faith, and now I'm sharing it with you so that you, in turn, if you don't already have it, can share in that inheritance. You can be chosen exiles, dispersed over this earth, waiting for an inheritance that's to come. And as the letter continues, as Peter goes on, you'll, we'll, we'll find that it's, it's very exuberant in tone, exalted in language. Every paragraph contains vivid imagery, vivid imagery and figurative language, but at the same time, Peter gets to, to a, a specific practicality you know, in Christian life and things that Christians go to. Right, the tone is more, it's, it's very urgent and intense. It's very fluid. It's always moving forward. There are more than 30 imperative verbs throughout the letter. That's one command in every three verses. So Peter wants us to do something. So as you're reading ahead, and I encourage you, church, weekly, be reading ahead. Be with us as you come. You know, let the Spirit, Holy Spirit begin teaching you and moving within you questions that you may have and then come with them Sunday morning and let him begin to teach you and answer those for you. But reading ahead, but keep it in your mind, just the urgency and intensity that Peter's writing to us with, and that he wants us to do something. But for now, we should remember, we should always keep it in our mind that this is temporary. Everything here is temporary. Everything here will fade away. But we have waiting for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Our citizenship is there where that Inheritance is waiting. But for now, temporarily, we are exiled here. So Peter exhorts us to live accordingly. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for this morning, Lord. I, uh, I thank you for Peter, just the man, Lord. And um, Lord, how you used him, how you shaped him, molded him into the man that he was, Lord, and the leader that he would be in the rock, Lord, that you would build your church on, Lord. And uh, I thank you for his faithfulness, Lord, to you and to us and to writing and to enduring the suffering that he went through, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord, here, Lord. And I just, I pray, Lord, in the coming weeks, Lord, as we dive into it as a church, Lord, that, um, God, that you would just impart your wisdom. Give us clarity, Lord, and understanding of your word, Lord. Or that the practical truths that come out of it, Lord, that we can begin to apply those to our life, Lord, and not just be hearers of the word here, but doers of the word, Lord. And as those you command us to be doing things, Lord, that we begin moving in those areas, Lord. But I pray, Holy Spirit, Lord, just remind us, return to us always the joy of our salvation, Lord, and just remind us that everything here is temporary. We're living for an inheritance and a glory that is to come that lasts forever, Lord, and we're living to see your face. And I pray, Lord, that just our faith would maintain us and guard us by your power, Lord, through that, to that end, Lord. And I just, uh, I thank you for that promise, Lord, and the comfort of that, Lord. And I pray for our church. Just go before us this week, Lord. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.